The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Stock Doc. I'm Dr. Nigel Finch. And it's my pleasure to be joined from New Hampshire with Jim Foy. Now, Jim's chairman of the Buy Now, Pay Later marketplace, Zebit Incorporated, and he's a partner of Crosslink Capital. Now, Zebit is a US-based Buy Now, Pay Later e-commerce marketplace, and it serves the millions of underserved consumers with up to $2,500 of Buy Now, Pay Over Time interest-free credit solutions without the traditional credit checks. Now, if the stars align, Zebit could be heading for a listing on the ASX in the not-too-distant future. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we turn to Zebit, I'm interested in your background and your experience. And um, you grew up in El Paso, Texas, but uh, how did you head off to be a chemistry graduate from Dartmouth and then a, a law and MBA graduate from Stanford University? Well, um, growing in El, El Paso, um, you know, it's a long way from every other place in the country. It's on the, the border of Mexico. Um, and my yeah. father, most people in my high school went to college in the state of Texas. That was the normal thing to do. And my father encouraged me to experience a different part of the country and look around. Um, he had gone, he'd grown up in El Paso and gone to the University of Virginia on a tennis scholarship and loved being in that part of the country, went to the military in World War II, and obviously it was in different parts of the country and the different parts of the world, and thought it was a great experience to experience other things versus doing what everyone else did and going to school in Texas. So I did a lot of research and evaluated places to be all over all over the country, and I largely picked Dartmouth for a combination of um, the part of the country, the, the mountains of New Hampshire, uh, skiing, um, outdoor activities, great education. Um, now, he never thought I would pick pretty much the farthest you could go from El Paso, but, but I did, and he supported that. <laughs> and then when I was getting out of Dartmouth, uh, I headed to law school initially, and you know, at that point, you you apply to the top law schools around the country, and I was lucky enough to get into Stanford, so I got to experience another part of the country. Um, having been an undergrad at Dartmouth, I really thought I would end up working in the Northeast, perhaps in Boston, for the rest of my career. I really liked it up there. Ended up going out to Silicon Valley, which is where Stanford is, and while I was there, um, I took advantage of the fact that Stanford also had a great MBA program applied to the MBA program, got in. And so I got both degrees, a law degree and an MBA degree from, from Stanford. And when I was there, it was right when Silicon Valley was just kicking off. I mean, it had, there had been obviously some tech activity before that, but my first year in graduate school, Apple went public and then Seagate, which is the largest manufacturer of disk drives in the, in the world, went public. Uh, Genentech went public, Amgen went public, a lot of iconic companies went public 
um, during my period in grad school at Stanford, and I sort of got the bug. I got the Silicon Valley bug, and that's where I stayed. I spent 39 years, 39 years in the Bay Area working in the tech tech sector. Mm. And it must have been a really interesting time. Um, While you were studying, um, when you were at Stanford, you studied under um, Professor Jack McDonald. Now, not everyone's going to know that name, but he was the preeminent professor of equity investing, and he taught for um, 50 years, you know. Now, um, Jack McDonald recently passed away at age 80. How influential do you think Jack was in shaping your views on fundamental investing? Well, Jack by far was my favorite professor in, in business school, um, and he had a lot of influence on me in, in a couple of senses. One was he just instilled in students a passion for investing and a passion for the investment process, the research process, you know, curiosity, learning, digging, 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 finding out everything you could find out about a company, a market, a product, an opportunity. And uh, Jack, in addition to teaching, he wasn't like any other professor. Um, While he taught for 50 years, he ran a portfolio of his own. So he would talk about stocks that he would buy and why and what he saw and he was a um, in a period when in a lot of business schools, people were promoting the efficient market theory, you know, and there was people that got um, Nobel Prizes for efficient market theory. Uh, Jack was a proponent of fundamental investing. Now, he, Jack happened to be a value investor, um, but he fundamentally believed there were dis- dislocations in the marketplace that the market was not efficient. You could find pockets of inefficiency and therefore find great uh, fundamental growth, invest, growth, fundamental investing opportunities. I happen to have a passion for growth and growth stocks and growth markets. His passion was for value, but the investment principles were the same and he supported, supported students regardless of their interests because what he wanted to see was a passion for investing in his students. Um, he was an incredible incredible guy and he had an influence on you know generations of students that went through that school so much so that a bunch of yeah. alumni at Stanford raised money to name a building after him which is unusual mm. to have a building named after a professor usually it's named after a donor now you've uh, recently gone back to Tuck uh, to do some teaching and I'm hoping that you're still carrying the flame of Jack McDonald in those uh, classes you're taking I do. I'm trying to instill this passion for investing in in these MBA students. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look, it's just it's just wonderful to find inspiring teachers along the way. Um, and I, I just think, you know, um, I just wanted to pay a, a little bit of respect to that. But Jim, throughout your career, you've had many, many highlights, you know, going on to be managing director in UBS and then um, joining a West Coast VC fund right after the dot-com internet boom went bust in the early 2000s. You've also exited some pretty serious businesses along the way, such as uh, music streaming company Pandora and several others, which achieved multi-billion dollar market cap exits. Can you tell us briefly about the entry date and exit date and perhaps the, the highest return you made on a single investment round? Sure. So, um, you know, Prior to a company that I'm working with right now, Pandora was probably my single biggest winner. We made, we first invested in 
October of 2005. Uh, the company launched its service a couple of weeks after we invested. So the, the previous funding funded the product development. Our, the round that we led funded the launch of the product, of the radio product. And we, I don't remember when our last sale was. Let's say the company went public in 2011. Our last stock sale or distribution was probably in 2016, I would guess, 15 maybe. And uh, our initial entry price was 24 cents a share. Our average exit price is just taking all of the distributions and sales we did over time. The average exit price was $25 a share. Um, so that's over 100x on that first round. Mm. Um, we continue to invest in subsequent rounds. Obviously, the multiple goes down in subsequent rounds, but we made 100x on that round. Um, if you take the peak price, our peak exit price was $38. So we had some money out at, call it, close to 150x. Um, yeah. I, have a, I have a company now called Chime, and it's still privately held. But at the most recent um, valuation it's been given by through a term sheet, um, it's looking right now I'm sitting at 150x our initial investment. So we led the, the Series A investment in that company, and that Series A investment is up 150x. Um, we've continued to invest along the way, but that initial round is up 150x. Now, that's not liquid. So that's a big difference. It's Pandora. That was 100x realized, fully realized, distributed to limited partners. Um, in this case, it's still still privately held. Um, yeah, well, Jim McDonald would be proud of you. Well, I hope so. Um, you've been involved with Sezzle, which listed here on the ASX in late 2019. Um, it's now worth more than $800 million. Given that you saw the opportunity in Sezzle, when other U.S. investors didn't understand it. Can you tell us a little bit about Sezzle and the markets it serves? Yeah, so when we, Sezzle is obviously a buy now, pay later. It looks very much like Afterpay. Um, it partners with uh, e-commerce merchants for a checkout and no interest, pay over time, no interest checkout solution. Um, the fundamental business model is like Afterpay is driven by velocity of capital. You extend credit for six weeks. It's outstanding for an average of 21 days. You're cycling that capital throughout the year and through velocity of capital, you generate a very high return on invested capital. Um, the, for them, their customer acquisition cost is funded by their merchants. So they spend sales and marketing dollars to go find merchants to partner with. The merchants have the consumer. So they don't have to acquire consumers directly. They have to acquire Merchants, which makes their sales and marketing spend very, very efficient, um, which is a really interesting thing about the business. At the time I invested in Sezzle, there was no buy now, pay later solution in the United States. Afterpay existed in Australia. They had not launched in the U.S. There was no solution in the U.S. Sezzle was the first solution in the U.S. And frankly, when we found it, um, when I found it, and I found it because of Zebit, so coming full circle, the founder of Sezzle contacted me, and usually VCs don't respond to cold emails, but if a cold email is highly targeted and has a lot to say <laughs> to get one's attention, a cold email can work. And this was a cold email, and his cold email said, you're on the board of directors of Zebit, 
And if you understand Zebit's business model, obviously you're passionate about Zebit and Zebit's business model. If you understand Zebit's business model, you will understand our business model. Will you, or would you be willing to take a look at at Sezzle? And if, you know, that's a rare cold email that you say yes right away. I answered right away and said yes, I'd love to speak to you mm-hmm. and learn more about this product. Um, and I couldn't convince my firm to invest in Sezzle. That's a sad story. I couldn't convince my partners to, you know, at venture partnership, you need consensus around the table to do a deal. I couldn't convince them to invest in Sezzle. They looked at it and said, well, they're living on this, you know, five to 6% interchange charge, if you will, quasi interchange charge to the merchants. I don't know how they can make this work. No matter what I told them about the math and velocity of capital, I just couldn't convince them. And they also said, we're already in Zebit. We can't have two of these that are extending credit. Mm-hmm. But they they gave me permission to, having turned it down, they gave me permission to invest in the Series A, which I did. And by the way, I, I hope this is 100x because I invested in the Series A at, I think it's 0.1684 cents US, so call it 24, 25 cents Australian. And I didn't check the stock price today, but, um, you know, it's up, call it 50, 50x right now. Um so I think they have a tremendous opportunity and there's a potential 100x in Sezzle. That would be for me personally, and for a relatively small check, not for our fund, which has obviously a much greater impact if you can do it at the fund level. Well, look, I wish you luck with that one, but I want to talk about Zebit today. So how does Zebit differentiate itself in the buy now, pay later market? So Zebit is the only company in the market doing what it's doing. So it's not like the other checkout BNPL companies look relatively similar. They might have slightly different strategies, slightly different approaches, um, but they look relatively similar and have very similar business models. Zebit is a merchant. So Zebit is the only buy now, pay later company that is an e-commerce merchant. They have a full, broad e-commerce site. They sell products directly to consumers. They allow consumers to buy those products over time, up to six months, paying no interest. So they're very different from the other companies. And there's no e-commerce merchant that offers a zero interest. You know, occasionally people will do a a special. You can buy this product now for on sale, and the sale is effectively no interest rather than a discount. But on a regular basis, offering no interest credit for six months no one else does that in the e-commerce space. And the other BNPL companies are much shorter duration credit, six weeks of credit. This is six months of credit. Um, so right now it's unique. No one else is copying them. They're alone in the marketplace. They're also serving a fundamentally different consumer. They're serving these underbanked consumers that really wouldn't qualify for an afterpay or a sezzle checkout. They wouldn't have the credit rating sufficient to qualify for them. These are the consumers that are right now getting preyed upon by very predatory solutions like rent to own, where a consumer, quote unquote, rents a product over time, eventually owns it. By the time they own it, they've paid two to four X retail price (laughs) to own the product or retail installment credit at obscene interest rates or payday loans or you know other high interest lending solutions that's the consumer that's getting preyed upon 
And there isn't a consumer-friendly solution for them. Zebit is a consumer-friendly solution. It's a lifeline for these consumers. And there's 80 million of these consumers in the United States, right, that fit in this category. So this is an enormous market opportunity. And right now, they're all alone in the market. It's really just a question of the company getting the capital in place to pursue this growth opportunity. But this can be a very, very large, multi-billion dollar kind of company over time. Yeah. And I mean, having a look at the website, you see an enormous range of um, uh, of products that they sell or, or, or more precisely, you know, drop ship to, uh, to their customers. So it's a pretty, um, pretty wholesome offer. But can you give us a bit of a quick snapshot of Zebit, perhaps, you know, current revenues, number of staff, number of countries you operate in, subscribers, just, just a sense of the size and scale? Well, I can tell you we only operate in the U.S., so that's an easy answer. I don't believe I'm allowed yeah. to give you revenue numbers, uh, headcount numbers, you know, number of consumers, um, you know, at the appropriate mm-hmm. point. Um, if and when the company ever goes public, that would be disclosed, but I'm not really allowed to to do that. Um, I can tell you that it's grown very, very fast from a standing start launching the product Um it, it's been extraordinary growth in the first few years. Um, number two, I can tell you that you, you brought up the drop ship. So I can tell you how they're able to do this. And that is, if you think about the typical e-commerce company, the, they have here's where their costs are. On the front end, they spend marketing dollars acquiring consumers to come to their site to shop. That's expensive. They're competing against a lot of other e-commerce players for Google search terms, for Facebook ads, for any other kind of advertising. The ad rates for that are high, and therefore the customer acquisition cost for those consumer those e-commerce sites is high. It's not unusual for people to spend $100, $150 U.S. to acquire a new consumer for the first time to come shop at your site. Obviously, you can't make money on that consumer until they start buying frequently when you're spending that much money on marketing. On the the back end, they're carrying inventory. So they have a balance sheet cost of carrying inventory. Zebit doesn't carry inventory. As you said, we have we drop ship from the manufacturer, from the distributor, directly to the consumer. The inventory never passes through the hands of Zebit. So we have no inventory on the balance sheet to worry about or to finance. We do have to finance receivables. So our balance sheet cost is financing the receivables from these consumers, but we don't have to finance inventory. We don't allow returns. So that's a huge, if you want to do business at debit, maybe it's a negative, but for these consumers that don't have any other alternatives, they're perfectly happy understanding that there are no free returns. Um, But that's an enormous cost, free returns, free shipping, all of these other things that e-commerce companies provide eat into their margin. So we take that in, that entire margin savings and we use it to finance this credit facility. Um, and then you mentioned velocity of capital at the beginning. I mentioned in the context of Sezzle, we don't quite have the velocity of cas- capital of a Sezzle or an Afterpay because our average credit is outstanding, call it three months instead of three weeks. But um, we still spin the capital four times a year, and that leads to very high returns on invested capital. 
if you do the math, which once you have all the numbers, you'll be able to do the math. You do the math on return on invested capital is very, very high in this business. Absolutely. And so what's the secret sauce that keeps this business humming along then? Is it, is, is it its people? Is it the selection of the products that it curates? What is it that you think? Well, it's a combination of people on the execution side and it's um, capital to grow because you can only grow this business rapidly if you have the balance sheet to support the receivables um, that come along with that growth. The more consumers you acquire, the more consumers are transacting. Um, the more they're spending with you, the bigger your receivables balance. So you have to, you do have to have the capital to finance those receivables. That's not a lot different than Afterpay and Sezzle. Have to have capital to finance those receivables. You can finance some of that with debt, but you do have to have equity in place to support your debt capacity. Um, and but then there's the team. As I said, this is a this is a complicated model. Other people have not figured this out. They haven't tried it. The company has no competition. <laughs> Their competition doesn't really understand what they do. And this team has is incredible in their execution and their ability to understand all the knobs and dials they can turn in this business. They can turn up the growth. They can turn down the growth. They can turn up the margin. They can turn down the margin. They can turn up the, the bad debt. They can turn to grow faster. They can turn down the bad debt to produce more cash flow, grow more slowly. They have a lot of knobs and buttons they can turn tune. And so they can Make, they, they've, they've proven they can manage themselves in an up cycle in the economy. They can manage themselves in a down cycle. They had incredible mm -hmm. execution in the post-COVID environment when everything initially shut down and people were losing their jobs. Um, and uh, this team is incredibly impressive in their ability to, to execute. So that's a big part of the investment thesis for us is the team, not just the product and the solution in the market, but the team that's out there doing it. I'm not sure other teams could do what these guys are doing. Yeah. Look, it sounds it sounds impressive and we're keen to learn a little bit more along the way. But Jim, I want to go back to um, your early days with the partnership with Crosslink Capital, which was almost mm -hmm. 20 years ago. What were the things you were looking for um, in an investment back then? And what's changed in the way that you appraise investments today? Uh, you know, fundamentally, nothing has really changed in the following sense, that what drives every venture investment is a combination of product, market, and team, right? Product, is it a highly, is it a new, highly differentiated product, solves a big problem? What I, I like to say, it solves a hair on fire problem, <laughs> and you got to put out the fire in your head. Um solves a big problem, right? Um, and it's a unique solution. It may not be defensible from a patent point of view because patents are really hard to defend for tech companies. The reality is patents are kind of useless. But it's defensible in terms of um, that it's hard for people to replicate and um, especially in a time frame which enables them to be competitive. Um, so, these, you know, you tend to look for products where if the company gets the lead and establishes brand and market position, that then it makes it harder on its competitors, even if somebody tries to, to copy it. Um, markets, you're looking for enormous markets. At the end of the day, that drives the opportunity to create enormous companies. You want to have enormous markets, markets in the, you know, billions, not markets in the hundreds of millions. Um, and then team, you got to have 
outstanding teams. Um, I have a, one of my one of my partners used to comment um, saying his quote. This is his quote: "There is nothing sadder in the venture business than seeing a great idea in the wrong hands, in the hands of a bad team." So you know you're looking for great teams. Now, the, my corollary to that, though, you can find a great team, but there's also nothing sadder than the, the, the thing that's as sad as his expression is finding a great team with a sort of mediocre product idea or a small going after a small market. So they're yes. all important. Product, market, and team are all important, and you're looking at. So the main thing that's changed for me personally is when I moved over from the investment banking business, where in the investment banking business I'd been focused on. Uh, you know, IPOs and strategic acquisitions by, you know, each successive generation of young emerging companies, you know, the next set of technologies, companies to go public or to be acquired by the strategics. When I moved to venture, the most natural place to move was sort of mid and later stage venture where the companies were closer. They had more to to dig into and they were had more, more in, in, in a way of financial results um, product results, and you know, you could sort of look forward to them. The, the IPO didn't seem all that distant, if you will. And so, I started my venture career looking pr- principally at mid-stage, but very quickly shifted to early stage, simply because the mid and later stage gets very competitive. It gets price competitive. You know, a lot of people will find the same deal. They bid up the pricing. And it's hard to find inefficient pricing in um, the later stage pieces. So, you know, I got earlier and early stage. And, you know, most of what I've done since has been either really early or, you know, call it five, less than five million of revenue, which is beyond really, really early, but not, you know, mid and later stage. And Jim, we've only got a minute or so, but before we finish up, can you share your thoughts on some of the emerging tech developments that may one day be interesting for investors? Um, oh, well, that's I I fundamentally believe that we're still in the early, early innings of a tech revolution across the global economy. Um, you know, tech is just eating all kinds of industries in the sense of, uh, you know, having impact in more and more industries. It was 20 years ago, it was relatively narrow and it's just penetrating more and more industries and having more more impact. And so those are vertical market solutions, horizontal solutions. Those are enterprise solutions. Those are um, consumer solutions. Those are um, services that are enabled by technology. Those are products. <laughs> They're software products. They're hardware products. Mm-hmm. Um, so my job, ironically, is not to predict the next big thing. My job is to find the entrepreneurs who are predicting the next big thing and try and assess whether I've, you know, I have conviction that they're right about the next big thing and that it's the right team. I don't have to come up with the ideas. If I had the ideas... I would be the entrepreneur. <laughs> My job is to <laughs> sort, sift through the ideas yeah. and figure out which ones I think could be big opportunities over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, but I think there's no shortage of them and uh, there's plenty of opportunity out there. So I understand that uh, a listing in Australia for Zebit 
is currently being considered. So, look, I wish you all the very best with that. Jim, boy, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks to my guest, Jim Foy, for joining us on this edition of Top Dog.